This is a podcast from thebuglepodcast.com. The Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to issue 235 of the world's leading and only audio newspaper for a visual world. A single shaft of hope in a universe of unremitting darkness. That's a lovely review we got this week from Potato Processing International magazine. <laughs> for the week beginning Monday, the 20th of May, 1013, this week we'll be discussing what type of dung makes the most comfortable bed, living into double figures, the pros and cons, and how to make plague fun. Oh, shit, I've got the wrong millennium. Sorry. Monday, the 20th of May, 2013, with me, Andy Zaltzman, here in London, and in the city that never sleeps, which might explain why it's so irritable a lot of the time and has so many coffee shops. New York is the Zelezny of Zingers, hurling his javelin of joviality right up the middle of Satire Stadium. It's John, (laughs) the melting aubergine Oliver. Hello, Andy. Hello, Buglers. And, Andy, I speak to you from a country that is just coming down from a very intense bout of Prince Harry fever. (laughs) And look, I know that Harry has been a controversial figure in the past, what with the naked pictures and the Nazi pictures. (laughs) And let's not gloss over that last one, because let's remember that he did actually dress like a Nazi that one time. (laughs) But on this trip, to be fair to the lad, Andy, he was Prince Charming personified, helping wounded warriors hitting baseballs charmingly well and touring a landmine exhibition to the screams of girls outside. That's how attractive he's become, Andy. He, he now has the capacity to make women horny at a landmine exhibit. <laughs> uh, journalists here breathlessly ran around after him disgracing their profession, frantically asking questions to anyone he met along the lines of, Ooh, what does he smell like? What? How's his handshake? I bet it's firm at first, but with a hint of tenderness and intimacy. Would you say shaking hands with him was like shaking hands with a shaved bear? You know, strong but soft. Like it could kill you, but it won't. Instead, it's going to use its strength to protect you. Would you say that? And if so, can you please say it on the record, please? What? One of the final events he took part in before he left the Americas, Andy, was a, a polo match in Greenwich to benefit Lesotho AIDS orphans. That's got to be the first time polo match in Greenwich and Lesotho AIDS orphans have ever been used in the same <laughs> sentence. And I frankly can't wait for his next visit, Andy, when he takes part in Nantucket's dressage for ringworm. <laughs> were, you, were you playing in that polo match, John? I wasn't, Andy, right. but, you know, me- mentally I was there hitting every yeah. ball, if they call it a ball. What do they call it? A rock? I don't know. A peasant? What do they call it? I did beginners hitting peasants' heads around, I think, didn't it? With a, yeah, that's right. With a pike. Yeah. Did you? So you didn't hang out with the prince? Uh, I didn't, all? you know, I, oh. I waited, I left my phone on. Yeah, real and royalty. I waited and for the uh, call, but it didn't come. Real royalty and showbiz royalty. Um, <laughs> that's right. Well, uh, it sounds like I've had a bit more of a celebrity-packed week than you this week, John, because, mm-hmm. uh, well, what a week I've had. I was uh, visited by the ghost of Margaret Thatcher. Really? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think she just wanted someone to talk to, and uh, she actually said that she wasn't that into haunting people. Uh, she right. said, uh, did enough of that in my lifetime, uh, laughed the right-wing apparition. Are you not tempted <laughs> to snatch some more milk off people's porches? Leave it out, mush. I'm not a f***ing poltergeist, barked the former education minister. So I said, <laughs> struggling for small talk with the eerie figure before me. Uh, what's it like being dead? So all right, she said, casually picking some non-existent dirt from under her now non-existent fingernails. Not a lot to do and the food is shit, she whinged. 
So, uh, I responded, what have you been up to since the uh, big uh, big funeral? Oh, mostly catching up on some Zs, she gossiped, alarmingly conversationally. <laughs> Never slept much when I was alive. Bon Jovi has always been a big influence on Margaret Thatcher, she, she said ghostlily, revelling in the freedom <laughs> of death to refer to herself in the third person, like the heavyweight boxer she'd always dreamed of being. My political outlook might have been shaped by the likes of Salma Hayek and Kinky Friedman, but my sleeping patterns were all Jovi. And your, <laughs> and your attitude to the welfare state, I asked. What, living on a prayer? Yep, to be honest, JBJ did filter into the odd policy here and there. Bad medicine was basically the blueprint for the NHS from 1984 onwards. But it only came out in 1988, I said. Yeah, he sat on it for a bit. He wanted to see how the 87 election panned out before going global with it. There was an awkward pause. The ghost of Margaret Thatcher looked at me searchingly. What do you want, I asked. Why are you here? Is it because you see me as a failure? Everything about my education says I should have been a lifelong acolyte of yours, and yet there I was a couple of weeks ago making some half-arsed gag about how you meant to say a unicorn, not society, in your classic there's no such thing as gag. Is that why you've come to haunt my night, so fearful dead former Prime Minister? No, she said, belching quietly to herself. Old habits die hard. Then why, I begged, is it because you're haunting Britain household by household, trying to scare people out of thinking that the legacy you left behind was one of division, selfishness and a harsh individualism that has spawned a nation drawn into itself and aware of the price of everything but the value of nothing? No, she said, but now you mention it, that is a good idea for filling up my now extremely empty diary for the next couple of decades. Why then, I pleaded with the wraith like Tory, why? Because I saw your piece on the snooker and I think you're a Andy, well, I don't know what that was, but I enjoyed it very much. <laughs> so this is Bugle 235, not only the squad numbers of Henry VIII's wives who died. Two and five picked up career-ending neck injuries. Three popped their own clogs. Uh, one and five were benched, and six played on after the boss left the club. Uh, but 235 is also, ironically, the answers to the questions in episode 235 of the popular 1950s quiz show Mickey Mango's Half Hour Halfwits. <laughs> and the questions were... What is the name of the thing in his mouth that President Eisenhower uses for chewing food? What is the English word for reef? And where would I live if I was a bee? And the answer's tooth, what? reef, hive. Two, three, five. But the contestant actually went with CIA, roof and Mexico. So there you go. <laughs> and this is uh, the week beginning Monday. That's when I've, been... <laughs> I've had a busy few weeks. I think it's just all come spilling out now. <laughs> 79 years and two months on Monday uh, since uh, Bernie, uh, Bert, little Bertie Einstein published his theory of relativity. And uh, it's 98 years and two months since he gave the first draft to the publishers, which began, eight bananas is a lot of bananas if you're eating them all at once yourself. But eight bananas is not a lot of bananas if you're going to try and run a banana import-export business. The publisher said, it's never going to sell, Bert. Physics is what the punters want these days. Really complicated physics. Einstein said, you said you just wanted me to write what I want to write and you'd find a way of marketing it. Welcome to the industry, schmuck face. Now grow your hair out, get some funny glasses and get physics all. Can you bang my secretary on the way out, please? They can't be asked to do it today. So Einstein locked himself in the laboratory for, for, uh, for a year and boom, changed the face of science. Funny old world. Also, um... 138 years since the uh, signing of the Meter Convention in Paris, uh -huh. which uh, brought in the international system of units, uh, stuff like the meter, the centimeter, the millimeter, uh, later the kilogram, and you know some of the all-time great measurements. And these replaced the various units that had previously been used around the world by different cultures and different countries. Measurements of length, such as the mile, the inch, the fingernail, the nut grot, the scoop, the grizzly shoe, and the penis. 
Weight measurements such as the 100 weight, the pound, the ounce, the rat, the dead rat, the decomposed rat, the rat skeleton, the healthy stool and the wap. And time measurements such as the tears, the tip, the jiffy, the yawn, the grandmother, the wobble, the punch, the slow lingering death and the erection. And that last one is why women's clothes actually became so much less revealing um, during the uh, 19th century from the... uh, cleavage heaving corsetry of the 18th century to the neck clinging queen victoria style prudity of the late 19th century it was all down to this time measurement the erection it was so their men folk would get extra time off work after the old industrial revolution kicked in prompting the development of a factory-based workforce and unions to represent them now union pressure led to factory bosses uh, eventually conceding that all workers were entitled to a bit more time off work so they gave them a, a two erection break a day which in the notoriously fleshy 1700s would have been 10 minutes max, but uh, in comes 19th century fashion, and that two stiffy break suddenly stretches out to a whole afternoon until Florence Nightingale brings in the nurse's uniform. <laughs> oh, yeah! Andy, what? we haven't even technically started the bugle yet, oh, yeah. and you've already buried both of us under an avalanche of bullshit. <laughs> I haven't even got to the section in the bin bit yet. <laughs> oh, my God! <laughs> this week's section in the bin... It's a free compliment from the Bugle for you to use at any point in the week when you feel you need a bit of a lift. Do choose from, you look so much better than normal, that new perfume of yours really brings out your eyes, your rash is looking so much better. Yeah, no, I do really think so. It's just much more symmetrical now it's on your whole face. And you're so much nicer than that dickhead husband and or wife of yours. Delete as appropriate. That's <laughs> free compliments on us in the bin. Top story this week, Pakistan election update. And uh, this has been a dramatic few weeks for Pakistan. Their recent election marked the country's first successful transition from one civilian government to another in its 66-year history. To put it mildly, Pakistan has had real trouble in the past with passing the relay baton of government effectively without either dropping it or having it shot out of their hands. Historically, democratically elected Pakistani governments have tended to end in some form of military coup and or government collapse, essentially for decades now. Politics in Pakistan has been a series of military regimes with a sprinkling of occasional democratically elected governments giving that delicate, barely perceptible fragrance of democracy. Even when there were governments, they were largely run by one of two parties. Not that that makes them particularly different to the United States or Britain. (laughs) The uh, Bhutto's Pakistan People's Party and the Sharif's Pakistan Muslim League. So even when there were democratically elected governments, they tended to be from parties run by family dynasties, which means even their democracy had more than a faint whiff of monarchy about it. Though, again, as a side note, America is in no position to criticise them, (laughs) given the regularities of the name Bush, Clinton and Kennedys over the years coming up during presidential elections. But in the past, essentially... As a Pakistani voter, your choice has essentially been military dictatorship, which is not a choice at all, or opting between two very profitable family family businesses. It's basically like going to a restaurant and having the waiter say, let me run you through the menu. Would you like the shit pie or the T-bone shit, or would you like me to just punch you in the face and throw you out the back of the kitchen instead? I'll give you a minute to decide. Which is very different from our choice that we get. Of course It's like going into a restaurant and being given a menu. And having the complete freedom to choose between uh, a rat's testicle, a uh, <laughs> bucket of sick, and a chicken nugget, which is basically the former dipped in the latter. 
<laughs> what made this election special was that, on its surface, it promised to be different. There was a new electoral roll after the list of those eligible to vote was completely overhauled in Pakistan. Since the last election, 37 million bogus names were removed. Names like uh, Fatima P. Fakey name, uh, Zahira Don't Let Me Vote, Hassan Bogus Man, uh, Naveed Do Not Exist, and Farouk Peter Beardsley. Hard to say how they didn't pick some of those up, at least, Andy. I mean, they, it was right there. Yeah. The point is, 36 million names in place were then uh, were then added. 37 actual, authentic names, meaning there are now 85 million verified voters in Pakistan. Uh, also, there was hope that technology might be helping electoral accountability as Pakistanis use their mobile phones to film electoral abuses. Uh, in a recent by-election, apparently, one politician was filmed slapping the election officials counting the vote. And the footage went viral, being played across news channels and prompting calls for the politician to be banned from holding office. Although, let's be fair, Andy, let's not rush in judgment here. We don't have any context for that video. Perhaps the politician was slapping the official counting the vote because he thought they looked sleepy and was saying to them, wake up! Wake up! It's very important that you count this vote accurately, regardless of how the result may affect me. Wake the f*** up! I do not want to accidentally gain an unfair advantage through your mistakes. That is why I'm beating you now. That is why. That is why you're being beaten. Do you understand me? Wake up! We don't know. That's all we I'm don't. saying. We don't know. We it. don't know. But it was uh, the highest turnout since um, Pakistan's first election in 1970, around about 60 percent, which is quite impressive. Wow. Um, and that's you know roughly what uh, I guess you know not too far away from what Britain and America get. And we have the added advantage of not having the Taliban threatening to kill us for walking to a <laughs> polling station. Which, that is a fair point, Andy. Yeah. That's a fair, I think the US managed 61.8 percent. Yeah. Turnout at their last election, but they they were not, as you mentioned, being shot at on the way to the polls. <laughs> yeah. So it takes, uh, you know, people risk their lives to cast their votes. Whereas, I mean, we have to make sacrifices for democracy in Britain. You know, some people, yeah, just can't 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 find a way to make sacrifices, such as walking five minutes out of their way to cast a vote. But I guess we all have to suffer for our freedoms, and there's added risk <laughs> as well. You know, if some. Uh, Drone operator in Texas spills his coffee on his keyboard and accidentally presses the kaboom button whilst cleaning it off. That's, that's an added factor that might dissuade you from going to the polling station. That's true. That's true. The, the official pre-election monitoring actually came in for some significant criticism, despite the hope that things would change, with the Election Commission of Pakistan seeing to sleep on its job of oversight heavier than a security guard after snacking on an entire turkey with codeine stuffing and washing it down with a warm glass of NyQuil. Uh, in the run-up to the election, instead of dealing with issues of corruption, loan defaults and fraud, the Election Commission seemed to employ a bizarre line of questioning, such as asking candidates to recite verses from the Koran and questioning other aspects of their faith. And that does seem, Andy, uh, like a a slightly less important line of questioning regarding you know, the problems that Pakistan is facing at the moment, questioning their religious beliefs, rather than questions like, uh, you know, where did you get all that money that is almost cartoonishly bulging out of your pockets? <laughs> uh, apparently they suddenly began to enforce a couple of basically forgotten articles in the Pakistani constitution, articles 62 and 63, which require that only pious and law-abiding Muslims 
can hold office. So all of a sudden, authorities were forcing candidates to prove their Islamic credentials to the point of even having them answer Islamic history trivia questions on television. And that is less democracy, Andy, and more some kind of bizarre Islamic game show of electoral jeopardy. Uh, I'll take the Prophet Muhammad category, please, Alex. OK, and uh, what would you like to gamble on this question? Oh, I'd like to gamble my future electability in its entirety, please. <laughs> OK, lights down, please. I am a cave in uh, the mountain Jabal al-Nur, where Muhammad received his first revelation. What H am I? What H <laughs> am I? Oh, oh, oh. Oh, God, I, I, I know this, Alex. I know that's why I'm not annoyed with myself. I know this. I, it's there. It's right. It, it's in my mouth. I just need to get it out of my mouth into your ears. I'll... Oh, shit. I'd like to announce my withdrawal from the race, please, Alex. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, it's so much easier at home. <laughs> Although, to be completely fair to the commission, Andy, there were some other non-religious-based questions that actually proved quite effective. Uh, Some to just ascertain general intelligence after it emerged that a ridiculously large number of college degrees held by Pakistani politicians in the last parliament were completely faked. On one (laughs) Pakistani news... Yeah, well, well, it's what's wrong with Andy's when it's faked to this extent. Oh, right. On one Pakistani news channel, there was even a clip of a candidate who claimed to hold an MBA being asked just to spell the word economics, something <laughs> he failed to do completely. <laughs> that is a spectacular way to crash out of a race. Um, just spell the name of the degree that you claim to have. That's all. Just spell the name of the subject. Just spell it. Spell. <laughs> Just spell the subject that is printed on the degree that you definitely have and no more questions asked. (laughs) Okay. Um, E. K. (laughs) Shit! (laughs) Well, I just, you know, it's much more important with economics to concentrate on the big picture rather (laughs) than, you know, just your passing ephemera like how you spell economics. I I suppose, I suppose... That's true. I suppose, in a way, Pakistan, all they're developing is gotcha journalism of the (laughs) worst kind now. Uh, One of the uh, main figures in the election campaign was uh, Imran Khan, um, Mm -hmm. who leads his uh, Movement for Justice uh, party. Uh, One of the greatest cricketers in the history of uh, humanity's greatest creation, cricket, and uh, if you Americans can't accept that, then that is is your loss and your fault. Um, But uh, he... Uh, ended up the election campaign in hospital with a fractured skull and vertebra, which you might not think is that unusual in the violent world of Pakistan politics where assassinations are commonplace and corruption is ludicrously rife. But he fractured his skull and vertebra, falling off a tiny platform being lifted up by a forklift truck to get him on stage. 15 feet up, with absolutely no railings, and four people Mm -hmm. balanced on it like clowns. That's right, that's right. Not the most obvious way to get on stage, even if you were probably the finest but fast bowler in the world during a big chunk of the 1980s. That did not help him at that moment. Gravity took, very much took over. Yeah, the, the video is absolutely horrifying. He's sent up in the middle of you know, a frantic crowd on, you know, a, like you say, a hydraulic lift onto which a ludicrous number of people are balancing, all of whom then fall. He was apparently doing up to seven of these mass rallies a day until the inevitable incident. And then he continued to release videos from his hospital bed saying, and I quote, God will not take me from this world until a new Pakistan is built. Going on to say, oh, f- 
My back hurts. Oh, I mean, it really hurts. Did you see that fall? What was I thinking? Seriously, my fucking back is killing me. Uh, if you don't know uh, Imran Khan, he was... Uh, if, you know, if, you, if you're not aware of him, he's about as handsome as you can possibly be without just instantly turning into a marble statue <laughs> or becoming a walking men's fragrance billboard. And uh, he was uh, he was the most exciting of the choices, really. He, he headed up the Pakistan Movement for Justice uh, party, was very popular uh, with young people and first-time voters. Uh, and he was going up against the more established candidates. First, there was uh, you know President Zadari's. Pakistan People's Party, the PPP. Uh, it did very well in the last election in 2008 after its leader, Benazir Bhutto, was assassinated. Uh, this led to many political strategists around the world looking into the possibility of these sympathy-based elections, running a candidate solely in the hope that they'll be assassinated and being handed the election in sympathy. Perhaps that's what the Republicans were trying with Mitt Romney, Andy, we don't know, or, or what McCain was trying to do with Palin, run someone who a large amount of people might want to murder and then serve the wave of sympathy that followed. Uh, the other uh, main rival was the, uh, the opposition party Pakistan Muslim League uh, of ex-Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, who was favourite uh, to win. And uh, unfortunately, in the run-up to the election, as you mentioned, on the election day itself, uh, Pakistan was plagued with violence, more than that. Uh, 100 people were killed in the run-up. 24 people were, were killed on the actual election day as al-Qaeda and Taliban militants targeted leaders and workers from all parties seen as being not Islamic enough, which, in their view, basically includes any politician who hasn't literally run a campaign commercial of them beating the, uh, their wife for wearing <laughs> perfume. Uh, but, uh, like you say, despite everything... Uh, Pakistan managed a decent turnout, uh, although the PPP, the MQM and the ANP all claimed that they were unable to campaign normally as a result and argued that the failure of law enforcement agencies to ensure security as uh, a case of pre was a case of pre-election vote rigging. But look, Andy, yep. all, all of this is just background yeah. that we've gone through. Now. The key question here is not what happened in Pakistan. It's not, you know, what's the best way forward for Pakistan in the future. It's not... What's happened in Pakistan in the past to lead it to this point? It's not how do they cope with militants. Clearly, the, the, the most important question is, what does America want the result of this election to be, <laughs> Andy? And, and to know that, we need to reduce this vastly complicated situation into who are the goodies and who are the baddies. <laughs> Anything more detailed than that, Andy, just isn't going to fly. So independent observers argued before the election that a strong government led by Nawaz Sharif, could be a major concern for uh, NATO forces fighting Taliban militants in Afghanistan. Uh, uh, Sharif is close to right-wing religious forces in Pakistan who oppose US policy, and he has an uneasy relationship with the Pakistani military, which unseated him in a uh, coup back in 1999. So that's the concern, Andy, <laughs> that Nawaz Sharif would win. <laughs> who won? Drum roll. Nawaz Sharif won, Andy! <laughs> Sharif, he is now the most successful politician in Pakistan's short and explosive history. This is a politician who can take a punch, Andy. <laughs> He's come back from multiple corruption allegations, imprisonment, exile and a military coup. That is some tenacious electioneering he has from the young Sharif. A big, a big political chin on him. 
He's, he was removed from power back in 99 to the relief of much of the country, which viewed him as corrupt, incompetent and power-hungry. But now he's changed, Andy. <laughs> he's changed. He's different this time. Like an abused wife, Pakistan is taking it back as her friends stand around thinking, what do you see in him? And then stand by to pick up the pieces yet again. <laughs> It was a disastrous uh, election for the uh, the ruling PPP, who took an absolute welking at the polls, where they were battered like a suicidal squid in a tempura restaurant. <laughs> and now, what are the challenges facing Nawaz Sharif as he retakes power for his third stint as uh, Prime Minister? Uh, a columnist in the uh, prominent Dawn newspaper said that what Nawaz Sharif has to address is the faltering economy, a near-complete breakdown of the infrastructure characterised by power outages and fuel shortages, unemployment and terrorist violence. So there's a nice little intro for starting a, a new job, something to be getting on with, something to pass on to your secretary for filing. My, my favourite quote from the election, Andy, came from a, a Pakistan voter interviewed by BBC Pakistan's producer. Uh, this was a PPP supporter in Islamabad who said, every party in Pakistan is bad, but the People's Party is a little bit good. <laughs> it's worked hard for Pakistan. And that is... But, I mean, that is some realism in someone, Andy. That is not reaching too high. Everyone's bad, but they are a little bit good. They're a cherry on the top of this shit Sunday. I think that might be the Liberal Democrats' campaign slogan in the next general election here. (laughs) UK legal aid reform news now. And, well, for a start, (laughs) even that title is slightly misleading, Andy, because... Legal aid in Britain is currently undergoing the kind of reform that a cow gets when it is reformed into a low-grade beef burger. (laughs) Or or the kind of reform that a Spanish donkey experiences when it's thrown from a clock tower. Uh, (laughs) This is going to seem quite inside baseball, this story, but the the wider implications to this are are worth sticking with because they are f***ing amazing. (laughs) The, The government in Britain is currently introducing price competitive tendering, which is a nauseating term for an even more nauseating process. (laughs) It basically cuts the balls from legal aid and replaces them with two child slinkies, which, (laughs) sure, yes, they're technically a replacement, Andy, but they're not going to do any of the vital things that balls actually do. And this, like I say, this story is a little bit complicated, but it's worth sticking with, because when you finally get to the bottom of this, you realise that you are standing in an absolute whirlpool of shit. <laughs> yeah, so a price competitive tendering, I think it's political speak for flogging shit off and hoping things go, don't go more tits up than an acquisitive ornithologist in a hot air balloon. And um, what's happened is, a, as we mentioned last week, there's a prominent haulage firm, uh, a, mm-hmm. a lorry firm in this country called Eddie Stobart, and a subsidiary uh, of Eddie Stobart, Stobart Lawyers, has emerged as a leading contender in the bidding for this new generation of criminal legal aid, aid contracts that would uh, basically deprive defendants of the right to choose their own solicitor. Um, Stobart Solicitors is the name, which is the very name conjures up glorious images of lorry drivers doubling up as criminal lawyers, turning up at court <laughs> with a copy of the Sun newspaper under, the, under their arm, saying to their client, mate, your picture's in the paper, you're clearly guilty. But <laughs> it's not quite like that. Um, Stobart's... Uh, it, 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 the, the, the solicitor's bit, probably not that closely li- linked to the haulage firm, you hope, although you just never know these days and these days of uh, <laughs> privatisation of... Uh, public services and part of these proposals is to remove the right of defendants funded by legal aid to select their own solicitor so 
Best of luck with that, with that Crims. Sorry, uh, defendants. That, I mean, that is one of the problems with the whole issue. It's such a grey area. Maybe the government is just trying to clear it up by lumping them all together under the no smoke without fire clause of the Magna Carta. Um, Paul Harris, the president of the London Criminal Court Solicitors Association, warned that the quality of legal representation would inevitably decline. How is anyone facing serious criminal allegations going to feel being represented by a haulage company, he asked. <laughs> well, they probably think it might be quite handy for an escape bid, I'd imagine. But um, they able to drive... And also, you know, they'll save money. They'll be able to drive all the Ill- Ill- illegal immigrants straight to the cl- courtroom and just scrape them off the bottom of the lorry. The thing is, that, that is a key question. How is anyone facing ser- serious criminal ab- allegations going to feel being represented by a haulage company? They're going to feel, Andy, like an object with no value outside of a transaction. <laughs> and that's exactly how they're supposed to feel under these plans. Under these plans, you are not a citizen with, with rights anymore. You're basically legal freight. Just being <laughs> moved around with a pound sign next to your face. Uh- the Labour Party's justice spokesman, Sadiq Khan, uh, told the Law Society <laughs> Gazette, no one wants a second-rate system where you're forced to accept whatever representation you're given, regardless of quality. And that is clearly an outright lie, John. Some people clearly do want that, and those people include the government of this country. Now, <laughs> we, we received this email from bugler Alistair King, who's a solicitor in Leighton Buzzard, the uh, English town not far from Bedford, where you grew up uh, mm-hmm. when you were still English, John. Uh, and which gets its silly name, I think, from the third baseman in the 1955 World Series winning Brooklyn Dodgers team. Leighton uh, Bazard, of course, went on to have a successful career with other baseball franchises, including the Nashville Weirdos, the Tulsa Convulsors, the New York Forks, the El Paso Passovers, the short-lived Jewish baseball franchise, the Charlotte Bronte Sauruses, and that was never going to work out, having a franchise owned and run by someone obsessed by both paleontology and 19th century literature, and also concluded his career with the Sacramento Fascists. Um, Sorry, where was I? Oh, yeah, Alistair King's email from this uh, this uh, solicitor, British solicitor, who wrote to me on this, uh, wrote to us on this subject. I'm a solicitor, he says, who provides such services, so I cannot, as such, claim to be neutral or lacking in any self-interest. In fact, I always go so far as to say that the thought of losing my job and the same happening to over two-thirds of my colleagues excites a fair amount of self-interest. So, obviously, as he said himself, this is only one side of the issue. So I've asked the government to send a minister from the Ministry of Justice onto the Bugle this week to explain their reforms uh, from their mm-hmm. side of the fence. Unfortunately, um, I asked them that while I was sitting alone in my shed, so I didn't, they didn't hear or respond. So instead, I've guessed how the government would respond to Alistair's okay. comments. So he, he writes, The scheme proposed by the government is called price competitive tendering. Now, to me, as a government minister, this sounds promising, John. Price competitive tendering sounds like a recipe for some quality cost savings. It's so complicated to judge tenders on things like quality and long-term sustainability and overall benefit for society. Judging it on price just simplifies everything down beautifully. This is the 21st century, Alistair. We're in tough economic times, and we have to take tough economic decisions. And we have to ask, what do the disabled actually do? How much GDP do they give to this nation? Was Shakespeare disabled? Was Churchill disabled? Was Isaac Newton disabled? Sure, his hair might have smelt of apples, but other than that, he was fine. And if they have to travel further, it might encourage them to be a bit less disabled in future. There are various uh, other uh, points on uh, on this. That, but basically, he concludes, we are at real risk of destroying a legal system that, although not perfect, is the envy of the world and the model for many. And it is a bit of a concern. John, for a country which promotes its uh, love of freedom and democracy and uh, human rights so 
trumpetously that, um, that this is basically been lined up against the wall and shot at point-blank range. A few additional points were suggested to me by this hot chick who used to be a criminal barrister who I sleep with very occasionally. Don't tell the wife. <laughs> oh, no, actually, she is my wife. Uh, she said it's a staggering conflict of interest, but basically become unworkably expensive to allow your client to pursue a trial so clients will be pressurised to plead guilty in order to save money. It's almost incomprehensibly idiotic, this scheme. Uh, and the problem is... Uh, that everyone hates lawyers, basically, so it's kind of an easy target for government cuts, and lawyers are all lumped together, the ones who represent the poor and destitute in their hours of greatest need and darkness, lumped together with the ones who represent multi-billion pound co- corporations with a severe allergy to tax. Um, all bloody lawyers making a killing. It's all pretty depressing, John. Makes you think, what the f*** is this country all about? The measures have been introduced by MP Chris Grayling, and you can't say the words Chris Grayling, Andy, without saying the words... Not because the letters are the same, just because it's an innate human response to the concept of the man. And uh, these measures were contained in a document quietly released on the day of Margaret Thatcher's death and do not require a vote in Parliament, which is such a shady way of putting them in, Andy, that if he had any integrity grailing, he'd have done it wearing a cape and twirling a handlebar moustache. Uh, Basically, the British government is looking for a way to reduce the £2 billion that is spent on legal aid, uh, ideally by a couple of hundred million pounds. And to do this, the plan is to introduce factory justice of the flimsiest kind. Essentially, as you mentioned, any defendant who cannot afford to pay for lawyers will no longer be able to choose a legal aid aid provider. They will be forcibly assigned one, and these legal experts will then be paid a single flat fee for the case, regardless of how well they perform in it, how long the case takes, or whether or not the client pleads guilty, which seems at first, second and 99th glance to offer a clear financial incentive to the lawyer to have their client plead guilty. These new factory firms... Uh, Andy, will apply for new legal aid contracts. And and uh, qualifying bids must be at least 17.5% beneath the current rate. So from there, in general, contracts will go to those who offer to do the work for the lowest price, which I'm sure the lowest price has always offered the highest surface, <laughs> surface Andy. We know that. Yeah. They're not just going to be cutting corners on this. They're going to be psychotically attacking corners with a f***ing chainsaw. <laughs> and... In order to guarantee uh, winning firms receive a sufficient number of cases per year, the Ministry of Justice in Britain is proposing to remove the right of defendants to select their own solicitor. In other words, even if you think the lawyer that you've been assigned is terrible, you can't fire them, you're just stuck with them. And if that isn't bad enough, which it comfortably is, Andy, (laughs) it's bad enough by a long shot, then uh, firms apparently aren't going to know whether they've won these contracts until June of next year, giving them a massive three months in which to recruit staff and prepare to start work in September 2014. You do not want to have committed a crime by September the 2014, Andy. <laughs> or even worse, be accused of committing a crime that you did not commit. Bad timing on your part, that would be. And as you say... Andy, lawyers are not the most sympathetic characters, which is how you know that these suggestions are truly horrifying. Because if a story's making you feel bad for lawyers, that story must be pretty <laughs> astonishingly f***ing bleak. Michael Turner, QC, the chair of the Criminal Bar Association, said that the criminal bar will become the preserve of rich white males. Corporate firms will move in and barristers will eventually work in-house. The independent-minded judiciary will disappear as a corporate ethos takes over. To which the government's response was, oh, well, this all seems to be going exactly according to plan. 
And how much <laughs> is this going to save the government, John, all these uh, these cutbacks to our great legal tradition? £220 million a year, which will pay for the upkeep of our Trident Nuclear Bang Bang programme for one month. So that's worth every single penny. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, that the firms involved are even more worrying. It does seem like this haulage firm, this f***ing haulage <laughs> firm... Is likely to win a significant bid. A haulage for you're literally going to be treated like a crate that needs to be moved. What more confidence can you have (laughs) in your lawyer than knowing that they come from a haulage for a haulage firm, Andy? A A haulage firm. It's a successful haulage firm, John. I'm sure there's transferable skills between putting things in boxes and putting them in the back of a lorry and yeah, putting defendants in boxes and putting them in the back of a prison. Yeah, it's not that difficult, is it? If you look at it that way, it isn't. If you look at it a different way, it definitely is. <laughs> uh, this this Hawley's firm have complained that they've been getting emails from uh, angry lawyers telling them to truck off. And I wonder if they, those were followed up by other messages essentially saying, seriously, go truck yourselves, you trucking shameless <laughs> bunch of money-grabbing mother truckers. Uh, <laughs> this, this guy, uh, this guy uh, as you mentioned, Trevor Howarth, the, uh, the, the spokesman, for uh, the new Stobart Lawyers firm. Uh, he tried to reassure people who are concerned that a haulage firm is taking over the legal services of some of the most vulnerable citizens in the UK, saying, we can deliver the service at a cost that's palatable to the taxpayer. Our business model was developed with this in mind. We at Stobart Haulage are well known for taking out the waste, and the waste here is the duplication of solicitors going to the courtroom. At the moment, there are 1,600 legal aid firms. In future, there will be 400. At Stobart, we wouldn't use 10 trucks to deliver one product. Okay, stop describing everything in terms of trucking. That's making me more nervous about this, not less. He said, he said, I don't think the lack of choice is damaging. People are not entitled to access justice with an open cheque. No one is stopping them paying for their own choice of solicitor. And I guess he's right in a way, Andy. It's really providing an incentive to people, this. If you're going to be a criminal, work hard enough (laughs) to be the best criminal you can be and make enough money to afford proper representation for the future. (laughs) And if you're not going to be a criminal, Andy... You need to work even harder to make money to find a way to to, to make enough money in the future to get a decent lawyer in case you're ever mistaken for a criminal. <laughs> it's entirely possible, Andy, that law-abiding people now might be forced to turn to a life of crime just in case they're ever mistaken for a criminal in the future. <laughs> uh, a, a spokesman for the Ministry of Justice tried desperately to reassure panicked people, saying, quality-assured lawyers will still be available. Quality standards will be assessed as part of the tender process and we will ensure that they are maintained by the lawyers who win contracts. We will continue to uphold everyone's right to a fair trial. But with £1 billion a year spent on criminal legal aid, we have to look again at how to deliver better value for every penny of taxpayers' money spent. And that sounds... That sounds reasonable, Andy, but I'll tell you where... The spokesman lost me there, Andy. It was at the, we will continue to uphold everyone's right to a fair trial, but part. (laughs) The only acceptable thing to come after saying we will continue to uphold everyone's right to a fair trial is a full stop, Andy, or, if spoken aloud, the dropping of a microphone and the walking off a stage. (laughs) The moment the word but comes out of anyone's mouth after spewing a sentence like that, they should instantly be put into handcuffs. May I remind that spokesman, Andy, of the words, to no man shall we deny justice. That's not from inside a Chinese fortune cookie. That's not written on a toilet wall. That's from the magna 
fucking Carter. And by throwing the word but in at the end of a sentence about justice, you are basically winding the Magna Carta around a toilet roll, placing it in a public restroom and just letting nature take its diabolical course. <laughs> Your emails now, and this one comes in from Christy Joy. Dear John, Andy and Chris, in order of those most likely to be on my boobs. <laughs> that's, the, that's, you know, that's the kind of email we don't have enough of on this show. <laughs> Again, Andy, just be careful what you wish for. <laughs> I, brackets like the undoubted other millions of uh, other buglers, was intrigued by your mention of merch, excitedly and with a slight tinge of disbelief. I typed in the website. Though it took me a good five minutes to locate the link on your homepage. You really want people to work for it. Yeah, that might need to be addressed. I finally achieved the golden nirvana. In a happy state of glazed amazement, I ogled the goods. I pictured myself buying the T-shirts. I pictured myself wearing the T-shirts. After a long, slightly tearful moment, I realised that when wearing said T-shirts, I would basically have John on one boob and Andy on the other. Furthermore, oh given the position of their faces on the T-shirt, they would be in prime nuzzling or, or motorboating territory. <laughs> oh no oh no there's a huge design flaw Andy the difference depending on my level of exertion I contemplated it further how did I feel about this I wasn't sure I could potentially name my boobs John and Andy individually and together they could be known <laughs> as the bugle d- don't do that if anyone asked about the t-shirt explanations would be minimal uh, my husband whose name is Chris has been known to make forays into that area. You're sharing too much, Christy! <laughs> if he did so while I was wearing the T-shirt, he would essentially be fondling John and Andy in the face with clear sexual intent. What does that mean? Would it mean anything? Do you want Chris to, fond- do you want Chris to fondle you sexually? Does Chris want to? I don't know. Do you? Questions have been asked. Questions that I feel need answers. Yours in purient, purient curiosity, Christy, from Texas. Well, that's oh, a dear. side of the merch we just simply did not consider. And I thought yeah. the legal aid story was confusing. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess I can only advise that uh, just to minimise any risk of uh, excessive eroticism from your Bugle merch, you wear it on top of at least six layers of other clothing. <laughs> and we've overrun talking about Pakistan and the law. Uh, so uh, that's it. For the emails uh, this week, this glorious week for British justice. Um, do keep your emails coming in to info at the buglepodcast.com uh, and don't just forget to check our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com uh, slash the hyphen bugle. And I'll try and sort out the link to the merch page on the website so it's a permanent thing. And don't forget to take out your voluntary subscriptions at the buglepodcast.com. Until next week, stay out of trouble, buglers. You need to get, you really need to get in practice of that and what is going to become the spiritual home of the miscarriage of justice (laughs) if you are a British bugler. Until next week, from me in London, goodbye. Bye. Stumbled. Across a fearsome beast. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss lime bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, 
and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you 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 must be so excited. Listen now.